four, three, two, one, and we're live. This you are listening to Cosmic Children. The I'm your host Kevin, and today I have a very interesting person or guest in front of me. I have Sean Yap in front of me. Sean, could you please? I find the work you do a little bit fascinating. Please, so could you please explain uh, to the listeners, to those who do not necessarily know who you are, what do you do? Yes, what do you do? What do I do? Mm, as in like for a living kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so current stage in my life, I'm a PhD student studying the reproductive evolution of dung beetles in okay. Southeast Asia. Yes. Yeah. So um, from what I could gather, you are doing this work in the reproductive evolution lab. Yes, that's it. So, th- that is a tongue twister in itself. So, I well, did... <laughs> we, we, we wanted to call it the sex lab, but... Okay. Yeah. Were, were there any uh, limitations on that? Yeah, not allowed. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so, okay. we had to go with a slightly more, you know, science term, okay. reproductive evolution. It's just, just sex lab. <laughs> so, the more diplomatic term. Yeah. Gotcha. So, before I dive into what you actually do, from my research of your Instagram, mm. I really want to know, what the fuck is the Pokemon project? Oh, Yes. Okay, so starting from there, huh? Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of a thing that started back when Pokemon Go was like super popular. So a couple like two years, three years back. Yeah. Okay. So that happened when. Uh, okay. So so I play a lot of Pokemon, right? Like okay. from Gen One all the way till now. Wow. Yeah. So that's like twenty something years. Gotcha. Of Pokemon, right? And the uh, thing that struck me about Pokemon was that a lot of the designs mm. are inspired from real life animals. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, when it comes to raising awareness about like stuff like biodiversity and conservation and things like that, right? Uh, a lot of what we do as conservationists are kind of like preaching to the choir already, right? Because like mm. a lot of the blog posts that we put up, a lot of the photos that we upload, for example, yeah. a lot of these will only be stumbled upon by people who are searching for them. Yes, precisely. So you're kind of already talking to people who are interested in these kind mm. of things. But when Pokemon came out, this is like a video game. Everyone was playing it, right? Like um, Pokemon Go, especially like little kids and their grandparents. Yeah. The entire range of ages, the age groups in between. Yes. Everyone was on that bandwagon. So when you relate to a Pokemon character, it's something that everyone can kind of like, yeah, relate to. Yes. So and when you compare that to like a real life animal, I tell them, hey, like this fictional creature has this mm. special ability but mm. this ability is grounded in like a real life biological fact right and then we use that as a kind of like a gateway to introduce them to things that are uh that exist yep things that are in singapore that people don't really know that we have here mm. and how they might be interesting and then kind of like carries a conversation forward interesting yeah that, that's really interesting i remember the times where people are telling you I don't know if you've ever heard of the the saying that Pokemon is evil or maybe oh, that's yeah, terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's like, so interesting. So I, I stumbled yeah. upon it and I think one of the one of the Instagram posts you have is about you I think that you teaching or you having a slide of like different various Pokemon and teaching to students. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean one thing that came out of that was that some teachers who are game enough like game literally. Uh, <laughs> okay. Enough to, you know, embrace this side of like the, this unconventional kind of uh, mm. education like did invite me to go to schools yep. and engage their students so like students who may not normally be interested in like science and biology yeah. you appeal to them through like the games they play yep. so it's not just Pokemon it's like things like I don't know even back back some years you know even Dota Dota like, okay like how Bro- do you teach biology through Dota <laughs> <laughs> what it's like you know Broodmother okay so I'm okay. Broodmother back then 
I, I could really start a conversation about how like uh, sexual dimorphism in spiders, how hmm. the female is always larger than the males. Okay. That's why brood mother is like the the matriarch figure, right? Okay. Yeah. So is it about this is so interesting. Is it about finding something that is relatable to a, a, a wider public and mm. teaching them through that um, particular medium? Because I yep. never would have considered Broodmother, which is like a hero in Dota, yeah. like, a, like a huge giant spider, to be a teaching tool for sexual dimorphism. Yeah. It's so interesting. <laughs> Okay, so what what has your history been with 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 the Pokemon franchise? I know it, it came out what twenty odd years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. Yeah, uh, I think more than twenty years ago by okay. now. Because the twentieth anniversary was like I think one or two years ago. Gotcha. Kind of lost track of all these, but uh, I mean it's contributed a lot to the current path I'm on as well. Interesting. Because back then, you know, it's collectible monsters, yes, things yes, like that, yeah. catching creatures, documenting them in this Pokedex, right? Mm. That kind of carried forward. Um to my current interest in like insect taxonomy. I mean, my interest is not just in insects, but in biodiversity in general, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah but insects are just like the specific thing that I happen to be working on. Mm. So how do I say this? So I was interested in insects as a kid. Mm. That made me interested in Pokemon because like, there were things like Beedrill, Butterfree, yeah, stuff like that, okay. right? And then that interest in Pokemon kind of like drove my interest in documenting animals, basically. Up to today. Up till today, yeah. Which is kind of cool if you consider the history of Pokemon. What is the history of Pokemon? Okay, so... Creator of Pokemon is this guy called Satoshi Tajiri, who's a little bit of a social recluse. Okay. So, back when Game Freak was still, I think, a magazine. Yeah, were, it started as a magazine. Were they a magazine? Yeah, they were a magazine wow. company. They were a game, they were a game magazine company, I think. Okay. He was writing a lot about games. Yeah. But then he still felt like th- there wasn't a game back then that really hit all his the buttons for him, right? Yeah. So he wanted to come up with his own and that's how he started his company. Mm. And then he looked at a whole bunch of various uh, things for inspiration. Uh, two key ones were, one, his background in uh, catching insects in rural Japan. So Interesting. when he was a child, he did yeah. run around, catch insects, yeah. trade them with his friends, make them yeah. fight, all that kind of yeah. thing. Uh, I think his nickname was Dr. Buck when he was a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So he wanted to be an entomologist and then uh, Japan developed yes. this uh, rural town site kind of like got subsumed to part of the huge mega city Tokyo gotcha, and all gotcha. that kind of thing uh, so he moved to the city he got introduced to video games and then his passion kind of like shifted mm. yeah but then he still remembers his time exploring the wild and discovering like a new bug and have, trading them with friends that kind of this is I can kind of tell the, the genesis of Pokemon really yeah. yeah so it's this kind of joy of discovery that he wanted kids who are in the city to kind of like know about mm. And then he looked at the Game Boy and he's, he looked at the link cable. Back then, it was like a physical <laughs> yes. cable, right? <laughs> I remember that, yeah. Yeah, no Wi-Fi. Yes. No. Simpler times, but but I think they really pushed for like a social aspect yeah. to the game that it's debatable whether or not it is still there today because but mm. back then, you really had to go talk to someone to, to do a specific trade, even for a specific evolution, right? Yeah, exactly. So now you can do all these things online, right? Just call your friend over the phone and like, hey, meet me. You like, don't even know the person now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you just have to put up, I'm, I'm giving this up and I'm looking for this and it just trades for you. Mm-hmm. You don't even know the guy, right? Yeah, but back then you had to be physically next to the guy with the cable, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he imagined like little insects crawling between the machines. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and then he kind of came up with this whole idea of a collectible monster game that, you know, then has two versions because you they want to encourage people to trade and all that kind of thing. So, so that was the inception of Pokemon? Yeah. Interesting. So it's kind of cool how 
it started from him catching insects as a child and mm. then like now I'm kind of like using it as a tool to bring people back to nature, hopefully. Yeah. So even for yourself, it has informed, I won't say your decisions, but it has definitely impacted you yeah. throughout, throughout your life, even up to today. Yeah. Like even the basics of the gameplay and stuff like that, a lot of it is mm. not super, but kind of applicable to uh, the kind of mindsets we use, like for example, classification of... Okay. <laughs> Okay, okay. Please, please continue. Animals by certain traits. Yeah. Right? Like, you look at the Pokedex, you classify Pokemon by type and by... Yes. But if you go into the Pokedex, actually, they even have, have like, body shape, color, and all these other things they can classify them by, or eight group even. Eight group? Yeah. What do you mean by eight group? That one's a bit iffy, because technically by our real-world biological species concept, then all of Pokemon will be one species because they can cross species reproduce, right? Could you repeat that? <laughs> I didn't really catch it. Okay, please, please repeat that. Okay, so okay, so a bit of a sidetrack. Yeah. Um, so in the game Pokemon, you can your different creatures can reproduce yes. to give offspring that follow the female species. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but in real life, we can't do that unless in special exceptional cases where you have two very closely related species that can form hybrids. Yeah. So for most biologists, we follow what is called the biological species concept. What is that? It is basically saying that if two individuals mate, mm. the offspring has to be able to produce viable offspring. That means the third generation onwards must still be fertile. So okay. parents have a kid. Yes. Kid has a kid. The grandkid of the original parents has to still be fertile. Okay. Yeah. Hey, wait. Are there cases where they're not fertile? Uh, oh, I think it's it's up to up to... It's no, sorry, the it's, the, it's the child who has to be. Okay, so the yeah. direct offspring of direct these offspring two has to be okay. fertile. Yeah. So most... Uh, so there are examples of hybrids that are not um, not fertile. So mm. things like mules, that are like donkeys and horses. Mm. So they produce an offspring that has... Okay, this is another team term called hybrid vigor. So it's hybrid vigor. the good qualities of both the horse and the donkey, but it cannot produce its own offspring. So it's not considered a true species. It's not considered a true species. Yeah. So things like tigers and lions can reproduce to mm. give offspring, mm. like tions or ligers, depending on which one is the male and which one is the female. But ligers and tions are not able to reproduce. Liger sounds very sexy, by the way. Yeah. I think <laughs> there's, a, there's a zoid. Oh, <laughs> is it the blue one? Yeah. yeah, that oh, one. yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. So since they can't reproduce, they're not considered a true species. Yes. So technically, you can't have a Liger offspring then. There, there's no way they can continue the lineage. Yeah, so the only way to create a Liger is to breed a male lion and a female tiger. And it ends there? Yeah, it ends there. So I think that begs the question, why would people do that? I mean, most of the time, mm, these things might happen in the wild and they're like one-off cases. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so there are like things like Pizzly bears, which are like polar bears and grizzly bears. Wait, what? P- Pizzly. Yeah, is, yeah. is that like an official term for it? Kind of. Like, because they, they, <laughs> they don't have a species name, right? So yeah. they, they just use the common name Pizzly bear. Okay. Um, And this, I mean, this goes into like a whole bunch of other stuff like yep. global warming and how the, bound, the species boundaries between the cold tundra species like polar bears yep. and the northern uh, Eurasian continent, like where grizzly bears are, they yep. start to blur the line and then they start going to each other's territory and they start producing hybrid offspring. Okay, so anyway. I can't get the image of bears fucking out of my head, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. uh, just white bear, brown bear. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because 
I have to admit, before you even said that, I've always thought that, let's say, a particular species or let's say bear, like polar bears, yeah. they only mate within the, the categories of being a polar bear. But and typically they do, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's the boundary of a species is where sex is. Yeah. Basically. Wait, wait, wait. The boundaries... Do, do, do keep your mind. Throughout this entire conversation, you would have to repeat yourself quite a number of times because I have no... um conception of okay. whatever you do so I, and I find it fascinating okay could you please repeat that the boundaries of the boundaries between species is basically sex huh? <laughs> the boundaries between species yeah, so sex is what defines whether two individuals are one species or not so <laughs> sex and gender is different uh, so sex in this case is a verb yeah okay like the action of okay pre- reproduction okay yeah and being able to reproduce and produce viable offspring is what defines a species is, is that the the technical scientific definition when you're looking at uh these the, when you're looking at biology is that the definition for sex or is mm. there like a more proper because I, I i think moving forward we can sort of define what the the definition of let's say reproduction is and evolution is because those are terms that is is commonly spoke of like yeah. within people but I'm sure like within the scientific research part there is a proper definition for it right I mean sex is in the biological sense is two individuals um very a bit complicated because not always male and female yep that come together yep. and exchange gametes gametes produce offspring what so what's a gamete gamete are reproductive cells gotcha so sperm and eggs are examples of gametes okay so something like a cell that reproduces on its own so that's the difference between sex and reproduction by the way a cell can reproduce by cloning itself right basically is that asexuality that's asexual okay yeah so that's asexual reproduction yep and sexual reproduction is something that most multicellular organisms will have yes yes yes, yes. yeah Okay, so what would be your definition of evolution? Because you study that as well. You study reproductive evolution. Right. Yeah, so what is your definition of evolution? I mean, evolution is a very broad term mm. that covers basically, well, like a whole lot of different concepts and theories, actually. So okay, when someone says they believe or do not believe in evolution, actually, that covers like a lot of things. And mm. sometimes people... I mean, on, on choose to believe things to a certain extent and then yeah. kind of like stop there. So it's not a clear-cut yes or no in terms of evolution, right? Mm. So people like to um, separate it into micro and macro evolution. To be honest, to me, they're all the same. What is a micro and macro evolution? <laughs> so micro evolution, uh, unofficially, it's like a, like a species changing in certain characteristics over time. Okay. Macro evolution is like the point where you can say like this species has split into two different ones. Could you give me an example of that? Mm, let's see. See, so the reason why I say that they can't be separated is, for example, I give you um, something, two examples, yep. one that's separated in terms of time and one that's separated by space, right? So the first example mm. in terms of time would be, let's say you have a gray squirrel, right? A gray squirrel. Yeah. Okay. And then... Over many, many generations, like thousands of generations of squirrels, the squirrel at the end is a red squirrel. So from 
gray squirrel thousands of years after after that there is a red squirrel yeah okay and hypothetically if you could bring them together to the same point in time mm. they cannot produce viable offspring because the, internally they are different yeah because they have he has accumulated so many mutations over time that it's become a completely different organism interesting yeah but then where along that spectrum do you choose to cut off and say like this is no longer the gray squirrel but mm. it's now the red squirrel right Mm-mm-mm. so there's no way to to really uh, decide that mm. because the whole population evolves together in this case the whole population of gray squirrels yeah evolves together in in this particular enclosed scenario it's a very scenario. funny picture to be honest <laughs> yeah okay. and things like that do happen yeah um, and then the other example would be a bit more complicated so this is in space for example like so, space space no um Spatial. Oh, spaces. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, gotcha. Temporal, spatial. Yeah, so... Um, okay, so let's say in this country, like, uh, there's a population, we'll call it population A. Okay. And then next to this country, there's a population B. Yes. And there are still... So they're quite distinct populations, but there's still some level of gene exchange between these two populations. Mm. So individuals sometimes fly over a mountain range, for example, and then they still do reproduce and produce viable offspring. Yep. Yeah, so we consider them the same species. Uh, but in population B, on the other side, there's another population of population C. Yes. And population B and population C can produce viable offspring as well. Yes. But if you bring two individuals from one from population A and one from population C together, they cannot produce viable offspring. Then what happens? Do you consider all of them a single species? Or do you consider A and C different species? Then where does B go? That kind of thing. So, okay. The, the, uh, the species boundary is not a very clear-cut like definition all the time mm. uh, some people argue that all of life is a spectrum because all of life is a spectrum could you that, could you explain that okay so for example cells first appeared so that's the most mysterious part yep yeah and then multicellular organisms appeared like simple very simple organisms yep. things like sponges that are literally just bag of cells that kind of like come together and yep. collaborate right collaborate <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> And then you should coin that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then it moves on to slightly more complex organisms like jellyfish that yep. start to have very specific organs that can sting and like eat things and digest things, right? Yep. And then move on and on and on. But technically, all of these can be traced all the way down to a single common ancestor. The fish? No. Uh, for, all, for all vertebrates, it's a fish. But okay. even earlier than that, is there's a whole bunch of other things. Okay. Yeah. So if you look at it in in the context of the grey squirrel and the red squirrel, then technically, yeah, all of life is just a weird big spectrum that's mapped out in different branches. Mm. Right? So then the, the boundaries get very blurred between past species. The only reason why we can discuss species in a proper context is because a lot of them, a lot of us, because we are, we are also a species, yep. have been already isolated into nice little units. The that, categories, yeah, boxes, yeah. yeah. But even for humans, back a few, a few like thousand million years, there were still things like Neanderthals yeah. that we could reproduce with and produce viable offspring. That's why we still have we still have a bit of their DNA left in some of us. Today. Interesting. Yeah. So that's back when the genus Homo had two species that yep. were very closely related. They could mm. still reproduce. E- mm. Eventually, we we probably killed off the Neanderthals, mm. and then we became the single species left for Homo, mm. and then uh. Yeah, so, so and then our next closest relative would be like too far away to reproduce. So we are very clearly distinct units in biology. And this is often common within uh, Mother Nature that 
it's survival of the fittest, isn't it? Survival of the fittest is a, it's a bit of a, like it's it's, it's very catchy. I have to admit, mm. but not always. Okay. Why 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 is that? Okay, so, I mean, being adaptable is uh, one thing, sure. Yeah. But it's also like dependent on a lot, a lot of things like the environment and fitness. Um, so when people talk about fitness, a lot of the time they think about uh, the ability to survive, an individual's ability to survive. Yes. That, uh, and if you survive long enough, the assumption is that you get to mate and pass on your genes. Yes. Yeah, but a big part of fitness also is that second component, which is your ability to pass down your genes. The ability to pass, okay. And that does not always correspond with the ability to survive. <laughs> That's where okay. sexual selection and reproductive evolution comes in. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So let's 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 go into the, the, the passing down of the genes. Yeah. Um for could could you give a very layman's term definition of what sexual selection is? Okay, so the the survival of the fittest thing that people usually hear is usually associated with natural selection, right? Yes. Yeah, so that one we, we know of quite well. It's uh yeah, individuals' ability to survive, uh adapt to environment, uh that kind of thing. The one so usually that, okay, it's a bit difficult to explain. Usually drives certain traits that are beneficial to you in one direction. For example, uh, for insects, a lot of them have small body size because it's easier to avoid predators, for example. Mm. Um, and the default for insects, for example, is that the females are larger than the males due to fecundity selection. For what? Fecundity. So, like <laughs> what how? Is that? So, fecundity selection basically means how many eggs they can lay, right? Okay, okay. So, the larger the individual, the more food they can eat, the more eggs they can produce, the more offspring they can have. It seems very logical. Yeah. Okay. Um, but in certain groups of insects, there is sexual selection that's driving males to be larger than females, which is in the opposite direction. So, sexual okay. selection. Um, and natural selection sometimes go hand in hand, mm. but in some organisms, it goes in completely opposite directions. So okay. what is beneficial for uh, passing on your genes is not necessarily beneficial for survival. I think one of the more famous examples of this is like the peacock, mm. right? What about the peacock? So what makes a male peacock desirable to the females is fleshy display, right? Yes. His big tail, yes. Uh, the quality of his tail feathers and all that kind of stuff. So he's basically yes. strutting around with his tail fanned out. Yep. And basically saying look at me but it's not just the female who's looking at him right all the predators are like staring at him as well ah yeah okay okay but that is a result of uh natural evolution or sexual selection across many many years yeah exactly. because the females preferred the males with like a very flashy tail mm. is that how it usually is okay so that's where it gets a bit complicated okay <laughs> please, please explain yeah okay so there's a few different theories as to why this happens mm. one of them is uh what's commonly known as like Zahavi's handicap. Zahavi is just a dude who came up with this. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was an animal or something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the handicap principle basically says that if, um, okay, usually it's male, so I'm just going to say male in this context, right? Yep. So if a male has a organ or a display or something that uh, is not beneficial to his survival, okay, but appeals to the female, right? The fact that he has the ability to flaunt it and survive long enough to reproduce and get mates say something about his level of fitness. So in this case, um, it's supposedly an honest signal 
of his quality. Do you say under signal? Uh, honest. Honest. Or under signal. So okay. his appearance will be an honor signal of his genetic superiority. I understand. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other theories like the sexy sun hypothesis. That kind of I was researching that. Yeah, <laughs> what is that? Yeah. Basically, they say it's driven more by female preference. Mm. So, and it usually leads to this other theme thing called runaway selection. Okay, so runaway selection basically means one trait gets selected so strongly that it becomes super exaggerated and just like kind of like flies off the, the graphs already. So, an okay. example of this would be in what we call stalk eyed flies. Stalk? Stalk eyed flies. So they are literally eyes with, uh, sorry, flies with eyes on the ends of uh stalks. So that's it, so weird. Think okay. of it like uh like a slug with us. Yeah, like a slug or a okay. snail head. Okay. Right? Okay. And the males in this uh group, they yeah, and it's only the males who have the eye stalks that yep. go out that way. So females prefer males with longer eye stalks. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the hypothesis is that because they prefer males with longer eye stalks, their offspring will also have longer eye stalks. And then... Logically, yes. Yeah, and will be better able to pass on their genes because the other females from their generation will like them as well. Mm. Yeah, so that is the whole thing driven by female preference. When 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 you study these things, and yeah. is it a lot of theories? Because it seemed like there is a, a theory to, to explain this particular phenomenon and there's like a theory to explain this particular phenomenon. Yeah. Are these... Because, because the theory to me is is like a... It's not concrete per se, but it's just mm. a hypothesis. Is, right. is, is, is it like that to you? Or is, is that like how you would explain this particular phenomenon and everything else we based on this particular theory? I'm just mm. very curious on that. Because I use the word theory pretty loosely, but in science, theory is... Uh, as a term, as a specific term, mm. it's used quite heavily. As in, it has a very strong connotation behind it. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. So theory, so things like uh, the handicap principle, sexy sun hypothesis, the official way we refer to them does not have the theory word in it because there's not, uh, it's an idea we have, Yeah. but it's not proven to be close to fact. It's not proven to be close to fact. Like, uh, they're they still, they're still open to... Oh, really? Yeah. So things like evolution, that is considered theory because it has solid grounding in like basic biology, basically. Mm. Yeah. You can see it, like it's fundamental to even cell biology and biomedical medicine. Yep. Yeah. So if you take away that fundamental part of our understanding of biology, a lot of things won't make sense. Uh, yeah. Okay. So when they use theory of evolution, yep. that actually already kind of like assumes fact. For, mm. for when scientists discuss it. Lah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, that may be fact, but I have read of people not still not believing in evolution per se. Yeah. I mean... Flat earthers. <laughs> <laughs> like, part of me says that they're wrong, and part of me also, personally, like... Um, there's still a part that I think is open to like, if there's something that I don't know and in the future, it completely overturns the way we understand evolution mm. and it has a lot more evidence than what evolution currently has, I'll be mm. willing to accept it kind of thing. Oh, really? So like, interesting. I'm still a bit open-minded to that aspect. Uh, but with our current knowledge and our current understanding of the world, to me, I, I, I treat that as fact for now. Yeah. Is it important to... to quote-unquote, keep an open mind 
when you're doing your research to to, to be to be open to to something that you might not necessarily know. I think that's quite important because I feel like it's quite it can be quite arrogant for us to assume that we know things mm. like hundred percent mm. of the time, like in almost any instance. Mm. Yeah, but to some extent, it is also not very healthy to always be too open as well. So, for example, uh, like in the past when I, when I was still lacking like proper knowledge or education in, for example, taxonomy. When what it came what to, is taxonomy? So taxonomy is just uh, the science of uh, basically delimiting species. Okay. Yeah, yeah classifying organisms and naming them. Okay. All right. So, uh, I mean, when I was a kid, I would just say, oh yeah, that, this is that species, that's this species. Now I'm a lot more careful because sometimes they are not. <laughs> Even though they may look the same? Oh, yeah. Which is part of what my PhD is looking at also. So it's okay. very di- difficult in the case of like invertebrates, especially insects, to be able to identify a species down to species level. Could, could you just give an example how would you, you would do something like that? Because if let's say visually they do look similar, mm. what do you look out for to delimit between this is species A, this is species B? Okay, so um, if we want to describe a new species, usually yeah. it has to have some kind of um, evidence. So it's, in science, we call it a diagnosis. Mm. So you basically examine two specimens uh, very, very carefully. If one of them has been described, it's a described species, you have to look for the type specimen, which is basically the very individual that the entire species was described on. The very individual that the particular species So every time a person describes a new species, they have to designate what is called a type specimen. Okay. So that the the species status and the species name is tied forever to that dead body, basically. And any comparisons to that species, you have to look at the original body that you described it on as a basis for comparison. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, the problem is that in taxonomy, a lot of this was done in the past, right? Especially yep. for like birds, mammals, because yep. they were very easy to look for yes. and describe. Yep. A lot of the type specimen for loss, uh, even for insects. So it's very difficult sometimes for us now. Like, I don't know whether you spoke to Ken about <laughs> taxonomy, happened, yeah. but yeah. Uh, so basically, when you describe a new species, you have to look for characteristics that you think would make it such that these two species would not reproduce and come together. And usually, oh. in that sense, you, the most informative uh, traits to look at will be their genitals. Yeah. Is, is it... That, that is particularly interesting. Why, why the genitals? I mean, in, in organisms that are large enough and distinct enough, right? You can just say, okay, yeah, they are fur coat color. This one has a stripe. Mm. This one does not. And even then, sometimes, it could just be... Uh, variation within that species like how some of us have black hair and some of us have yellow hair right we don't consider a human with blonde hair a different species from one with black hair yep yeah and okay I'm going to speak of this in the context of insects because those are what I work with yep uh, for insects when they reproduce they are the way the male genital matches a female genital usually it's very very specific so even between closely related species, if they are really distinct species, if you look at the, the shape of certain like uh, traits in their genitals, so, I mean, beetle penises are not like ours. They, they have like hard sclerotized bits in it. 
what bit? Sclerotized. What's mean, that? Meaning that it's like um, kind of like an exoskeleton. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Imagine like a penis with a bone bone inside. And okay. strangely enough, I think humans are one of the few animals that don't have an actual bone in our bone. And, yeah. and that is probably due to, uh, I guess, what we talked about, selection and just evolution yeah. over time, right? Yeah. So Interesting. Actually, many animals, even even other mammals, have a, an actual bone somewhere. I was I was doing research on the duck one. There was like, oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So... Even though two species might look exactly the same on the outside, yep. usually once you open up and look at the genitals, you can tell the difference. Uh, the other way that we do it nowadays, especially, is we look at genetics. So mm, okay. we can sequence the DNA of two individuals, uh, look at a particular marker gene that uh, changes at the same rate as um, similar to that of speciation okay. within that group. And then we can say like, oh, this species, the what we call a DNA barcode because we literally scan that section of the DNA is like, let's say, arbitrarily 3% different from that of this other species. Yeah. And that's enough to call them a different species. Uh, it's a bit arbitrary, but um, now with even newer technology, we can sequence entire genomes, meaning all the ATCGs in their, that make up the organism, basically. Mm. Right? Uh, and we can compare them... T- to such a deep level that we can even separate out two populations of the same species and see whether or not individuals from these populations are actually exchanging genes and how divergent those are. So for example, I think recent one of the more recent ones was in, uh, in giraffes. I think they split giraffes into like one, nine different species based on that. Again, that whole idea of um, splitting a species is can be quite arbitrary and can be driven by... Uh, certain motivations. What do you mean by certain motivations? Um, like, is it just pure fascination? Or? Not entirely. So, ideally, all of science should be conducted objectively, right? Like, in yes. a descriptive way. Yeah. But sometimes, um, not saying that the giraffe study is not legit, <laughs> right? But, like, <laughs> for example, you're saying that, okay, you have a giraffe species, like, three giraffe species, yep. and, uh, they are still quite, and you know, the population sizes are still quite good. Yep. The, if you look at them as a whole, the, the, the population size is healthy. Yep. But if you look at, if you break them down into smaller populations and you point out that, hey, even though these are all the same species, like for the last 50 to 100 years, these populations have not met and they have not exchanged genes. So there's some level of inbreeding or like genetic isolation, mm. right? Uh, there's barriers to gene flow between these populations, right? Um, so... If they are divergent enough and you say that they are a different species, technically, instead of having three abundant species, you now have nine rare species because the population size does not change. Yeah. You still have, let's say you started with 100. Yes. They divide by three, so you have like 33 of yes. each. If you split it into nine instead, that number becomes like 11. Yeah. So you only have 11 of each individual species left. Yeah. So each one is now like a threatened status. So when you're oh. pushing for conservation of the giraffe, you're saying that you cannot just. Uh, say that because these are the same species, you conserve this population and you wipe out the other one because the other population is genetically distinct from this one. That is very interesting. <laughs> yeah. And it, it seems like it is doing something with maybe a particular motive in mind. Maybe. But, yeah. you re- but then you have to actually look at the science and see whether or not it's supported because mm. sometimes it is good science yep. and it just so happens to fit. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say call an agenda, but yep. that cause, right? Yep. 
yeah. I mean, it's troublesome if you look at the science and it's bad. And it's, it's very clear that they're doing it for a certain uh, motive, right? So, so to my understanding, whatever you just said, within the past 15 minutes, um, species evolve over time. Yes. And people such as yourself mm-hmm. would, through a variety of methods, track and delimit different species as they evolve and as they branch off into different different things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh I mean the idea of a species is also a bit arbitrary because we can define them as different species now, but in the future we, we don't know like they could further split into different species or sometimes they hybridize. Like for example a cat might not be a cat in the future. Is that something like that? You could say that like a cat might split into two different species of cats, for example. Yeah, and then what we traditionally know as one species of cat is no longer that one species, right? Because now there's two. Um, but oh shit, it's fucking confusing. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so species can only be taken as an absolute unit of uh in biology given a specific uh time and place. What do you mean by that? Meaning, at this exact moment, at this exact place, yeah. that whole population functions together as a species. But things change. But things change, yeah. So it's constantly changing? Uh, not at a rate that we have to constantly revise. But... Thank God. Okay. <laughs> because that's what I thought. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, a lot of us, what we do is we study uh, case studies where that allow us to look at the mechanisms by which these things happen. By ah. which you see like examples of uh, these populations splitting or coming together or hybridizing, for example. And... Um, why this happens. Sometimes it's human-driven, sometimes it's not. Yeah. So, and the relevance, I mean, a lot of us just do it because we are interested and it's a pure, it's a, it's a very pure science compared to a lot of what um, other people do even in ecology and evolution, right? What is, what is a pure, so a pure science what do you mean is, by pure science here? Yeah. Well, no, quote-unquote pure, quote unquote pure. <laughs> would be things like uh, mathematics and uh, metaphysics. Okay. Things that uh, contribute to our fundal, fundamental understanding of the world but yep. do, don't exactly have a direct benefit that we can use. Like theoretical physics and yeah, stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, but I'd argue that some of these are actually pretty important. So, uh, theoretical physics or? I mean, theoretical physics is important and it's in a lot of different ways. Yes. In the specific case of evolution and reproductive evolution uh, where the we we're talking about the boundaries between species is right so a lot of people will say that you know these are just semantics because like mm. it's just a name yep like whether or not you name the organism or you split them those biologically they function as they should but um so this goes into taxonomy already the whole act, uh, act of giving a biological unit a name Mm-mm. For example, apart from things like conservation, like the one giraffe species becoming nine giraffe species, yep. right? So the importance of a name for each of these populations would be uh, pretty important. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Uh, sometimes it gets entangled with law and sometimes it gets entangled even with uh, within science itself. So mm. two case studies I can think of are, I think there was a species of crayfish. Crayfish, okay. Yeah, so commercially fish worldwide, Yep. right? And then it was discovered that that one species of crayfish was actually three different species. But 
uh, maritime law and fishing laws and trade laws only cover the original species. So in areas in where they have been fishing populations of the new species, or I mean... Quote, unquote, new, right? Yeah, because yeah. they've always been there. It's just yep. they, they didn't know there was a different species. Yeah. Uh, if you were to implement that name change, yep. suddenly they'll all be illegal, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. Yep. So and there's then, people's livelihood, the economy, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, to me, the solution is simple. I just changed the law to include all three. But <laughs> then they, uh, some might argue that you need to study the populations of the three and the dynamics and whether one particular population is being overfished compared to the others. Then it, it becomes a bit complicated. Do, do enlighten me when... Let's say someone were to were to discover. Let's say go, going back to the giraffe example, mm. the crayfish example. When someone were to discover there's actually like nine different species, mm. is it like a everybody applause moment, or is it like a because it feels like something that if if I was a researcher that I actually cracked the code, like oh, there's actually nine different species of giraffe. Is it a very uh, is it a very big accomplishment, or is it just another day in the office? It depends on what it means. So usually for larger organisms, things like mammals and birds, yeah. uh, the discovery of a new species is a pretty big deal because uh, those are organisms that we think we already have a pretty good understanding of. Like birds, we, for example, even more than mammals, actually, we think we almost got it covered worldwide. We've, oh, we know almost all the species. So the discovery of a new bird species is usually quite big in the field. Do you get to name it? Or uh, whatever, yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I don't know, do you interview Mackenzie previously? I did, actually. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. He, he has discovered a lot of new species. Like parasites. Of parasites, yeah. yeah, and he gets to name them, right? Mm. So the unspoken rule is that we don't name it after ourselves. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, so you have to be prominent enough in your field for someone else to name something after you. Like I mean, you loses. can do it, there's mm. nothing stopping you from doing it, it's just that people judge you for it. Now. <laughs> <sighs> Interesting, okay, okay. Yeah, and usually, like, when you name something, it has... To have a meaning not always but really yeah so for a lot of like the old school taxonomy and stuff like that the name is very descriptive of the organism so a latin word like wow like a ladybird that is species name is sedesimnotata that is latin for 16 spots i think yeah Ooh, okay. so 16 spotted ladybird right okay so okay. very very physical descriptor yeah uh for some others so i have a senior who worked on crickets and grasshoppers and friends. And friends. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of other things that belong okay. together with them, right? Yeah, and he actually discovered a lot of new species from Singapore. Mm. I think he's described over 60 species, but I think half or slightly less than half of them were all from Singapore. Six zero. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, that is uh, a lot, right? Is yeah, that yeah. a lot? It is a lot. So okay. he, he's quite accomplished. Uh. He's, he's like a... He's quite well respected as an expert on this yep, yep. region right yep. now. So, Minkai, yeah, he uh, he tends to give names based on locations. So, for example, he's discovered a new species from Bidadari. Where is that? So, that's the small patch of forest. It used to be a cemetery okay. that is now being turned into a HDB estate. Mm. So, he discovered a species. Back then, we only knew it from that locality. Mm. So, he named it after that place. Yep. So, I mean, the reason for that was partly uh, to kind of like chip in for arguing for the conservation of that patch of forest because he discovered that species from there. Yep. Uh, naming it after a place in Singapore also kind of lends some... Uh, Credibility? Like Credence. there's a national identity attached to that species, yep. right? Like it's from this specific location that it was discovered. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
And even if Bidadari was to be uh, wiped out, if we can relocate the species, we'll know that originally there used to be a forest in Bidadari that house this species so there's a bit of history to it like yeah. for future generations when they were to look let's say at, at this particular species then you can trace yeah. it back to the location even though it might not be there anymore yeah and for example singapore has very few what we call endemic species so an endemic species is a species that is um restricted only to a location that's not so as how you define it so singapore if we define singapore as like mainland singapore yep. and like pulau bin and a few of other islands yep then this species of crab, freshwater crab, is only found within our boundaries, not in Malaysia. Not anywhere else? Not anywhere else in the world. Endemic. Endemic. Okay. So only found in Singapore, then yeah, the name has some weight. So that particular species is uh, Johora singaporensis. So Singapore is in the name. Interesting. Yeah, and that made like, I don't know, the IUCN, the worldwide bodies, like top 100 endangered species in the world, that kind of thing. It's, do, do, do enlighten me. Is it everyday like there is pop-ups or like new new species of let's say a particular insect or particular crab or is it like how how, how would it even work <laughs> yeah okay so it, i mean what's the timeline like for let's say if you 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 go and get a specimens and you go back to your lab and you 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 research and you cross-reference with the, the past whatever mm-hmm. and you the, the the genome sequencing how long would something like that take it takes a very long time and it really depends on what group you're working on okay so if you're working on a group that is historically very messy in terms of how they were described, so taxonomies of old, they were not necessarily good taxonomies. And they might be missing characters that we know now that can be used to separate species because we have things like microscopes, we have things like uh, DNA sequencing. It was like the technology. Yeah, they okay. were restricted by technology back then. Some of them maybe were just like really bad at it, even with the hand lens. Is it because... Um... Okay, for fundamentally, there's a lack of technology. So mm. I, what, what I would imagine is people used to just draw it. So it's what they can yes. see physically, right? Yeah. So like uh, six legs, uh, stock-like yeah. eyes or something like that. More physical attributes that they can see. There. They can't really cut it yeah. out or like something. So you'd right? be lucky if the species you're looking at even has like a drawing of the genital or anything like that. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. So it's unfortunate, but right now with... So... From, from what you said, yeah, the cross-referencing would be a little bit more difficult because it's a little bit vague, isn't it? Yeah, and a lot of the... Because I mentioned earlier, you usually have to refer to a type specimen. Yep. Sometimes these are lost because of like historical movements of collections. Yep. People borrow, never return. <laughs> people... Like a fucking library book, man. <laughs> yeah, so actually for, for a lot of these people, right, even the... So I went to Oxford, like, um, I think two years ago to yeah. meet the expert on the group that I was working on. Yeah. And like a lot of it is detective work. They've sometimes it's hidden away somewhere in their collections. The type specimen they just haven't been able to find it because like it's not been organized properly. They only know like the date it was collected and who yeah. collected it. Yeah. And maybe a little bit more detail that can use be used to separate it from all the other specimens. And then like sometimes they'll just be going through the collections and they don't find one or uh, one very special label. It, it doesn't look like anything special, but then it looks very familiar and they don't match it to. A type and then they realize oh shit this type has been sitting in our collection the entire time is it a physical type specimen or is it like a jpeg of it or okay so usually it has to be a physical specimen and only in recent times has there been uh, a little bit of controversy about whether we can describe species using a photo why is there controversy uh because it, the photo itself may not contain characters that you need to delimit mm, a species okay. so it happened once for a bird Okay. And then some people tried to do it for a fly. And then that got a bit iffy because uh 
for insects, usually we have to examine genitalia, mm. even DNA in so order to. For in that particular case, the bird they a bit relaxed, but for the fly, it's a bit of a a bit sketchy, lah. Yeah. Okay, but with these type specimens, uh, I assume they are rare. Are they rare? Mm, because they are valuable. <laughs> <laughs> But not rare. Uh, I imagine there's like one then it's being circulated around the world. It's not like that. Okay, so for every species, there's usually only one proper type specimen. Any other specimen that was designated as type together with a type specimen would be considered what we call paratypes, meaning they are like maybe a slight variation that you can refer to, but ultimately that single specimen is what defines the entire species. When you say slight variation, meaning... Meaning, for example, um, in my dung beetles, for example, right? You have major males that have super big horns. Okay. And you have minor males that have very, very small horns. So this is one and one. Yeah. And they look different physically, but they're the same species. So you can designate mm. one of them as the um, uh, type specimen. Usually, they'll choose the nicest one, uh, so like mm. the major male. And then you can designate paratypes, like all the different stages of uh, like maybe the female or the uh, minor male. But when you look at the when you look for the type specimen you'll look to whichever one like the major male in this case okay then you dissect the major male and ideally the morphology of his genitals should be the same as that of the minor male anyway so but in, in dissecting let's say the type specimen of a major male beetle mm. wouldn't that mean that other people cannot use it or does it work like that <laughs> I mean when you take out the genitals usually it'll be preserved separately in like a little capsule with a preservative liquid <laughs> okay. next to it. Okay. If you do it well enough, mm. you don't like stock it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that happens for a lot of well-curated uh, groups. So a group that like, let's say an, an expert has come along and spent lots and lots of time like collecting the type specimens in one place so they have a comprehensive like reference collection basically. Uh... So if anything new comes along, they already know that like, okay, it looks very close to this one and then yep. you can compare it directly. But in many cases, that doesn't happen and species are spread out in many different collections around the world. And, and that is uh, one of the functions that your lab serves up because he has a huge collection of all these type of specimens. Mm, is that it? At least the guy in Oxford Museum. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's why I had to go to him. What about Singapore? Is, is, does the Singapore have like a collection like this? Yes. So in the Lee Kong Chen Natural History Museum, oh, that's a very long blog. <laughs> <laughs> used to be... Uh, Raffles Museum of Biodiversity Research and then oh Lee Foundation gave us a lot of money <laughs> so they got renamed there is a dinosaur thing there yeah there yeah, is pretty, yeah. pretty amazing so there are we, we do have type specimens and we usually uh, try to get our hands on the ones that were described from Singapore because like the crab yeah that you mentioned so our crustacean type collection is uh, actually quite good mainly because our director is a crustacean taxonomist okay <laughs> so okay. he's like a like worldwide he's one of the forefront uh, of crustacean of crustacean taxonomy, right? So then, a lot of the reference collection of four crustaceans are actually in our museum, mm. and I guess for Southeast Asian fauna in general. But to be honest, a lot of the things that were described from specimens collected in Singapore mm. are all in the UK, because they were collected in the 1700s by collectors who came back then, and then they brought them back, and then they described it in the UK. So yeah. let's say if if you do let's. If, if you do require a type specimen that mm -hmm. is unavailable in Singapore, either you would have to fly to, let's say, a, a place that has it or you, you request it? Yeah, exactly. So okay. there are specimen loans. Those are a bit risky sometimes because of yeah the handling and the stuff handling like and that. all that. 
uh, if it's important enough, usually you'll go over to the museum and arrange a visit, which is kind of like what I did. What do you mean by important enough? <laughs> like, <laughs> like you need to file like a, like a request to visit? And yeah, yeah, exactly. Interesting. And in our case, actually, what we have is not really, what the museum has been doing is not really uh, finding type specimens, but like digital repatriation of uh, specimens that were collected in Singapore. Digital repatriation? Yeah. What so is that? Basically, they send a guy with a very fancy camera set up mm. to, to London. Yeah. And he goes to all the different uh, museums where they have specimens that were collected in Singapore, usually by this guy named Alfred Russell Wallace. Okay. Date already. Date already. Okay. Long, long date. <laughs> <laughs> maybe might mention him again later, but... Okay. So this Wallace guy, basically, he's... Uh, is this Angmo dude yeah. who uh, went to South America with his friend, yeah. uh, collected a whole bunch of stuff, uh, that ship caught fire, and oh, then like, shit. <laughs> most of the things he discovered never made it back to the UK. Yep. And then he, instead of being depressed and shit, he arranged a trip to Southeast Asia. Okay. So then a lot of uh, the descriptions of uh, what species lived here and what life was like back then yeah. is based on his diaries and his uh, spe- specimen records. Oh, okay. So, what he's most famous for is actually um, so-called co-discovering evolution together with Darwin. But so he's, nobody mentions it. Yeah, so, but he's the one who, came, who, who kind of like wrote a letter to Darwin saying like, hey, I've got this fancy thing about like uh, natural selection. So Darwin back then, he, he looked at organisms and he was like thinking about how they, they looked like they were progressing, right? Yeah. Yeah, progressive, but he didn't have a mechanism behind it. Like how, how things... Would. He didn't have the concept or the word of it, yeah? Yeah, so he knew things were changing and he knew like evolution was a thing, Yeah. right? Like things are related. He didn't know the mechanism behind it and then uh, or he started to have an idea of the mechanism and then Wallace wrote to him and then he was kind of like, oh shit, <laughs> this guy has the same idea as me. <laughs> Interesting. And he published it. Um, yeah, and then there's a little bit of historical, like some people say that like uh, Darwin stole his idea. Mm, all uh, the controversy yeah, behind. But some historians also say that like Wallace was took it as a form of praise like validation that, yeah validation that kind of thing so I don't know it's, it's in the past but that's what he's famous for and mm. that and the other thing he's most famous for is like yeah what he did in Southeast Asia mm. so he collected a whole bunch of shit when he was here he stayed in Bukit Timah for a while okay yeah uh, so a lot of what we know of our biodiversity in the past is actually based on what he collected yeah uh, all that specimen went back to the UK so what our museum did was we uh, had a few people working on the project. They went over, imaged those specimens that were found in Singapore, collected all the way back in the past. And then yeah. now we have a digital repository of... Uh, we, we can't have the actual specimens because for some reason they belong to our colonialists. Mm. But, mm. Uh, yeah, at least we have a record of it. And they are usually high-definition images that you can zoom in all the way and see like individual hairs yep. Yep. On, on a beetle, for wow. example. Yeah. Was, was it fascinating... Um, let, let's say for, for that time when you went over to the UK yeah. was it your first time witnessing such a huge collection? Mm, okay so the one I went to in Oxford is I would say not the largest collection so okay. London NHM the Natural History Museum of London is huge I think yeah. that one is massive and it's quite crazy I don't even know how they organise it Oxford is how big is how crazy is crazy it's like Parliament House times don't know how how many yeah, it's it's huge. Uh. It's not just insects, right? It's everything from birds to dinosaur bones. Wow. Yeah, okay. so if that place burns down, basically it's like losing a huge chunk of natural history. Uh. 
that's why you need photos. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but that place uh, in Oxford was historical. Historically, like, um, creatures, like those really old school wooden museums. And like, I don't know, there's, there's a, this is weird, like Victorian air to it. And like how, like one of the rooms I was working in was where uh, Darwin like basically defended his idea of evolution to his detractors that kind of thing mm. yeah, so there's a lot of historical weight behind yep, that yep, whole building yep. yeah was it was it interesting to you it was yeah yeah especially since like I happened to stumble upon like a specimen that Wallace of, of the species I was working on yeah that Wallace collected in Singapore and like all the way back in the 1800s that wasn't picked up by the staff yet at that time was there a light shining down from heaven and like <laughs> choir singing? <laughs> yeah, because I would imagine that is something quite um It is quite... groundbreaking the word. Like, whoa, like, what the fuck? Yeah. I mean the the significance basically is just that two hundred years ago or like a similar more than to that, picked up this beetle. Yeah, this something. exact same species was present here. La. Yeah. Okay. And that he found it. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's still here now. In in doing whatever that you do, is there a mm. particular purpose to it? Is it to to write to 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 publish like like a certain paper or like a research paper to for let's say for conservation for uh, greater biodiversity? What 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 do you think the purpose is? Um, I mean, to me, what science is is uh leaving behind a little bit of uh knowledge that adds to this huge growing pool of general human knowledge that we have, right? That okay should be of good quality such that like it doesn't make our knowledge worse but it gives some kind of fact to it so like it may not be groundbreaking as some of the other different type of sciences but as long as it adds to our understanding I think that's pretty good in the in this particular case uh dung beetles are eco- ecologically they're quite important okay. and they're used in a lot of ecological studies to estimate like uh differences between habitat types and forest types as a bioindicator species. So bioindicator basically would be an organism that is reflective of the environment that it's in. So like this, for example, this this species only lives in this forest type and yep. not the other forest type. So yep. by comparing the community of this group of organisms here and there, you can say that the, com- the community structure is different enough even though they are nearby to classify them as different habitat types, for example. Oh. Yeah. So for a lot of ecological studies it's quite important. So like in the, the group I'm working on, right, um, in particular in Borneo, for example, it's um, actually there's two different species of that genus. So both have been described. They're well known to be different. One is found in a deep primary forest to a healthy secondary forest. The other one is found in plantation. Okay. Yeah. So they look very, very similar, but um, there are small differences morphologically that we can use to tell them apart. And their habitats they live in are very different. So if you sample one site and say like, oh, um, usually it's very closely related to the quality of the forest. So one species is very common in plantation, but you don't find any of the good forest species in it. Then when you go deeper and deeper, you only find the good forest species. You don't find the scrub species. Interesting. Yeah. When you, so you're a researcher and you go out and do, this is called field work, right? When you gather the species, Mm -hmm. when you bring it back and when you uh, do whatever they do, is there someone else to to ex- explain the findings or do you have to internalize everything and you, you categorize into the, the different types of forests and their location? 
Well, how does, see, how does it work? A, yeah. a lot of what we do is actually based on what other people have done. Okay. Yeah, so it's this growing body of knowledge that's pushing us forward. Right? I understand, okay. Yeah, so we learn from, for example, what people have done in, in other places in the past. So I'm learning from what another group of researchers has done in Borneo and I'm trying to apply it to Singapore because they're both Southeast Asian tropical rainforest kind of habitats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then we are going a bit further that well, in terms of uh, DNA sequencing. Yeah. So in the past, they've done, they've done everything by morphology, but now we are realizing that when we do DNA sequencing, how we categorize species is slightly different. So we're trying to improve the accuracy of this uh, species community kind of uh, estimation using new techniques. Uh. Interesting. Yeah. So of everything and anything that you could choose, why beetles? Why beetles? Well, partly because... Pokemon? Pokemon. Uh, really? Pa partly because uh, I'm a bit of a, a masochist. <laughs> okay, so beetles... Why, okay, why Pokemon and why masochist? Yeah. So, I mean, one of my favorite Pokemon is Heracross. Uh. <laughs> it's the so, one with the big horn. It's yeah, the blue, two, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The blue one with the big horn, bug and fighting type. Okay. Yeah. So, did um, you get a mega evolution? He did, he did. Yeah, and that was do you approve or do you disapprove? I approve because it was useful for talking about a new species. So what? <laughs> so the the base form Heracross, right? Is yep. based on the Japanese rhinoceros beetle. The horn shape and all that is very similar to that Ooh. of the Japanese rhinoceros beetle. Okay. When it mega evolves, it actually turns into a different species. It becomes a Hercules beetle, known for being the longest uh beetle in the world. So those are super large. They have a large single horn that comes up the top. Okay. Uh, and a large head horn that comes up below it. Yeah. And then the elytra, the wing covers on the back are green in color. So when Heracross Mega evolves, it, the horn shape changes to that mm. and his shell becomes green instead of blue. So it's pretty fucking accurate. Lah. You can tell very clearly what they were drawing inspiration from. Lah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so why masochist then? Because beetles, as far as we know, are the most diverse group of organisms on the planet so far. Some people argue that now it's wasps, but until proven wrong. Yeah. <laughs> when you say diverse, so meaning, from my understanding, so beetle, you said there is the rhinoceros beetle and the Japanese. Yeah. So these are two different types. Two different species, yeah. Two different species. And you said it's diverse, so there's a lot of different types yeah, of so beetle. So for beetles alone, there are about 350 to 400,000 described <sighs> species. That means species with names. Right? Okay. You compare that to... I think mammals, there's only like a thousand plus. I think... I know amphibians, there's only all of amphibians together. Not, uh, it's about like 5,000 over. Beetles alone, like not even considering the rest of the insects, right? Beetles alone are like 400,000. So from... Let's, let's do a little bit of theory crafting. So from your understanding of science, yeah. why is there a need for 300 over a thousand different species of beetle. Is it is is it because of evolution? Some they, they just fox fox in different roads down down the path? I mean there's a lot of different theories I mean, not theories but like <laughs> hypotheses. Yeah. To, they try to explore why why in particular beetles are so diverse, right? Yeah. Uh one of the more recent ones that gained a bit of traction was the fact that they tend to be quite resistant to extinction as compared to many other uh insects for some reason. So there's more time to accumulate mutations and diversify. The other thing is also that um, I think a lot of the traits they evolve help them to diversify very quickly to fill different ecological niches. What do you mean by that? So 
let's say insects, right? There are insects that feed on nectar, there are insects that feed on seeds, feed yep. on leaves, yep. feed on other insects, feed yep. on those insects that feed on other insects. And <laughs> for every <laughs> ecological niche that you can think of, right, there's probably a beetle that does it. You can say that with confidence. There's probably a beetle that does it. Okay, so we think about things like very, very specific. Uh, what eats mosquitoes, right? Mm. And uh, usually we think of like dragonflies. Okay. So dragonfly larvae live in water, eat mosquito larvae. Uh, adults fly in the air, catch prey in midair, so they catch the adult mosquitoes. So good for mosquito control. But there are also diving beetles that do that. Yeah, and in fact, I think one of the so the, the final year students, the year four students, just presented their projects like today, like okay. literally today. Okay. And one of them was talking about how he was studying the feeding rate of uh mosquitoes. Mm. Like of um, dragonfly larvae on mosquitoes actually. So okay. how fast they eat uh mosquito larvae. But then on the side he accidentally collected some diving beetles. And on turns, the side, Because okay. he basically leaves a container out and yeah. then waits for things to to lay eggs inside. When he collects rainwater and stuff, right? And then um, he brings the, the larvae back and then he feeds the mosquito larvae and see like, how many they can eat in a certain amount of time. And he happened to collect some diving beetles while he was doing that. So he was okay, I might as well feed them also. And it turns out that they are more effective at controlling mosquito populations than the dragonfly model. So... Is it like another like heaven open choir singing moment or is it just like, <laughs> oh, okay, interesting. I'll put this in my research paper that he presented to you. Is it... It, yeah I mean it depends because it, it, dep- uh, it also depends on how applicable it is to like the relevant agencies right like if NEA decides that uh, mosquitoes are becoming an issue and they're looking at like a specific biocontrol organism to control mosquitoes then you can inform them like yeah. yeah dragonflies are good but there's also diving beetles you can use both you can use one it depends to, to your knowledge is, is it something that we we practically I won't say employ but we use as as a measure let's say for uh, mosquitoes I mean they they do spread dengue they do spread certain types of diseases so mm. to your knowledge is it something that let's say the NEA would employ like dragonflies or even let's say beetles mm. I mean, it, it is kind of cool it's a very cool concept <laughs> possibly so in this case they probably just fog <laughs> to be okay. honest okay. which is what they've been doing all the time right or they've been releasing Wolbachia that one's a whole other can of worms release what? Wolbachia so Wolbachia is a this is a very cheap word. Reproductive endosymbiote. So it's a... I guess symbiote. It's a microscopic organism that lives in a host that affects reproduction. So it targets the fact that they... It, it stops them from reproducing. Or it makes... You know, it makes their offspring infertile, for example. In this specific case. Yeah. For mosquitoes. Yeah. In male mosquitoes, I think the offspring become infertile. Yeah. Okay. So they've been infecting the male mosquitoes and releasing them. Uh, Very sinister, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of things to go wrong, but not not gonna go into that. Um, mm. Okay, so in terms of valuation of what we call ecosystem services, okay, another big word. Ecosystem. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So ecosystem services is just a fancy word that tries to tie the relevance of an organism to economic value. Hmm. Uh, a lot of organisms are important for this. I mean, trees for carbon sinks. Now they're realizing that actually seagrass and other like aquatic plants may actually store a lot more carbon. That's uh sea plants. Yeah. Okay. Um. So for example, dung beetles in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the more famous case studies. Australia never had native cattle. Okay. They had marsupials, right? Which are mammals that 
have evolved separately from mammals in the rest of the world. So they look very similar to our mammals, but they are nowhere near related at all. Like kangaroos and yeah. koalas. Okay. So things like kangaroos and wombats and back then the Tasmanian tiger, all that kind of thing, right? All of those are more closely related to each other than they are to the rest yeah. of the world. Like counterparts, the rest of the world. Yeah, correct. So the Tasmanian tiger looks like a dog, behave, functionally carnivorous like a tiger, right? Not related to any of those two at all, but more closely related to a kangaroo, for example, or a koala even. Yeah. Okay. So uh, those mammals in Australia had, you know, because of their, the way they were, mm. and the gut microbiome was very different from the rest of the world. Okay. They had very specific dung beetles that fed on their dung. So these dung beetles did not go for cattle dung. So when they started moving cows to Australia for dairy farms and other things like that, right, they had a massive problem in terms of uh, waste management, basically. <laughs> what are some of the effects of, let's say, for, like, they had, they had an issue with waste management. Yeah. What are some of the, the effects, though? Um, pests is one. Okay. Because it attracts flies and other things. Okay. Um, the fact that your shit just piles up and does not go away. Oh, that's always a problem. Yeah. Okay. And uh, disease, because uh, if you have a diseased cow and it's shitting all over and it's all frolic in each other's dung, it's a... Uh, basically a cesspool that is very easy easy for the spread of disease so let's say for a solution such as that would it be to introduce a very specific type of dung beetle to exactly to... yeah oh so they brought over a species of dung beetle called Antophagus taurus so taurus comes from cow right so they are well known from literature to go for cow dung <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you can say it for straight face, but it's interesting. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, so they, they they brought the cows over and yeah. then they also had to bring the dung beetles over to manage their waste. And the best part about this is the fact that Taurus tends to be very specific to cattle dung. It doesn't really like the marsupial dung from other from the native wildlife. So there's little to no risk of them spreading out from the farms and like displacing native dung beetles in that sense. So oh, it's, it's a win-win. Yeah, so it's a very contained little situation. So in um, parts of the world where cows are not native, mm. these dung beetles are of high economic importance, enough for businesses to be set up to breed dung beetles and to sell them. Yeah. And you don't have to pay them. I mean, you do have to pay the, the dung beetles. You have to beetle. pay the, pe- uh, the you, people. You, you, you have to pay the people to breed it, but I guess... Yeah. So people do buy dung beetles, especially in Australia. Yeah. Do you think that we have a lot of problems that could potentially be solved by the implementation of, say, ecological solutions, such as these. Because these seems like a very good alternative to, 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 to solve a particular problem if we do find a need to. It really depends on the type of problem we are facing, I think. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes there are man-made solutions that are work way better. And sometimes there's a risk also of introducing the wrong species if you didn't do a thorough enough study and then it goes completely well, What could happen? Okay, yeah. so in uh, Hawaii, okay. right? Hawaii never had rats or never had Norwegian rats anyway. So the, there's one species of rat that is all around the world. We call it a cosmopolitan species. <laughs> so, so the Norwegian rat <laughs> is, is found here as well. Okay. Right? Um, Usually spread Don't around. Speak into the mic, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's spread around the world through ships and people who travel. Wait, what? Yeah, so they hide on the boats and then they, when they land on a new island, they escape. So a lot of uh, extinctions in the past happened because of this because they were introduced to environments that did not have rats and then rats started eating like bird eggs and other things, mm. driving that extinction. So 
um, so Hawaii's had invasive Norwegian rats, right? And they decided to try and bring in the Indian mongoose. Okay. Yeah. Trouble was, uh, the Indian mongoose is a diurnal species, meaning it's active during the day. Norwegian rats are nocturnal, means they're active at night. So it's a bit pointless. Lah. Yeah. So then, then they ended up with two invasive species because then the mongooses, mongoose, I mm. actually don't know, yeah. uh, started competing with the native mammals, right? For resources that were not Norwegian rats, which is what they were supposed to be eating. And so then, this was due to probably like a lack of, I guess, enough research and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And this was also in Pokemon. <laughs> Wait, what? In the Generation 7, I think, Alola re- region, Pokemon Sun and Moon. Yeah. The whole Alola region was based on Hawaii. Okay. And they had Rattata, which went from being a normal type to a normal and dark type that only comes out at night. And oh, then okay, okay. they had another mongoose Pokemon that only comes out during the day. Yeah. Yeah. And then they... I never found in the same place. So that was based on the real life example. Do you think it's interesting how games can reflect reality or or can reflect, I guess, biology or like, so, so much? Do, do you think it's interesting? <laughs> I mean, I, I some of them are deliberate choices, right? Mm. Which is very cool in some cases. Yeah. Mm. It's like art mimics life, I guess. Mm. Interesting. Is there a dung beetle in? No, Pokemon? there isn't yet. Uh, Heracross is the closest thing because they're from the same family. Okay. Yeah. So, in the the the, the beetle uh, type, you have a particular focus on dung beetles. Is that is that true to say? Or for my current research, yes. What, what do you mean by current research? I mean, so I mean, you were studying a, a different type of uh, beetles before, or? Mm, well, my interest actually started in spiders. Yeah. So I was helping out in the museum back then with a spider taxonomist mm. when I was younger. And then uh, I interned in NPARCs for a while. And then okay. I wanted to study a whole other different group of, of insects. And they told me like, no, you're only here for six months and these insects are too rare. So <laughs> What like, insect? Those are uh, a group called Neuroptera, which includes things like lace wings and end lions. And lions. Yeah, not very well-known um, uh, group. I've heard of it, but I can't formulate a picture. Yeah. Do you play Pokemon? I stopped after Gen 2. <laughs> ah, okay. Damn, because there's an end lion in Gen 3. But, <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, what does it look like? It looks... Do you know Star Wars? I Is it like the, the pit thing? Yeah, yeah, that one. But that's an insect? Uh, it was based on an insect. So There's an insect that looks like a pit that can trap other insects in the pit? Yeah. So what? An, an lion looks like this. I mean, the adult looks like a dragonfly. The larvae looks like a little fat thing with big jaws. And they construct these little cones in the sand, these little funnels. Okay. Uh, and then when an, an insect, like an ant, usually ants, right? When they walk past mm. the cone, they will stumble in and then they'll slide. These vibrations will alert the guy at the bottom, and he'll start flicking sand at the at the end to try and cause a landslide, so that the end will roll down the the slope towards the middle where he's he lies with his jaws open. And then when the end goes in, snatch that, and then his jaws are hollow, so it sucks out the juices from the end while introducing while poisoning it at the same time. Is it that orange, orange, orange Pokemon that evolves like a fly? Thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, yeah. that oh, I, yeah, yeah. I I never knew that was based on a bug. I thought it was just some artists like 
random creature. It looks so weird. Yeah, yeah. So it's like this ground thing, right? Yeah. That, be- that looks a bit like a turtle. Then yep. it becomes a ground dragon. Like very type. nice fly, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so so that that's it. Yeah. So I wanted to study that group, but they said like it's too rare for me to have any collect enough data for the short period of time I was there. So they asked me to study ladybirds. Ladybirds. Yeah. So okay. For a while, I was looking at uh the diversity of ladybirds that are found in Singapore, both native and non-native. And then uh, from there, because ladybirds are beetles, right? Wait, ladybirds are beetles? Yeah, ladybirds are beetles. A lot of weird things are beetles that don't look like beetles. Do you like, have an example? Fireflies are beetles. Yeah. Is it one of those things where it's like evolution, like somewhere along the road, it just forked to mm, like, a, like a trait? Or? I think in this case, it's just um, it's just colloquial terms don't reflect what they actually are. So fireflies are not flies, they're, they're actually beetles. But when you look at them, they just they are beetles. <laughs> is it because of discernible traits that a beetle yeah. should have? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So they have the wing covers that mm. is unique to beetles. Yeah. Um fire beetles doesn't sound very nice. It sounds quite terrifying actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and then the other name for them is lightning bugs, right? Which is also not a beetle. Lightning bugs. Yeah. Sounds like a Pokemon. Okay. Yeah. So initially ladybugs. Yep. And then they open the gate the, there's a gateway drug to all the other beetles so I did a, a project in my undergrad years on another group of beetles um, and then for my final year project I was looking at general beetle diversity in different habitats in Singapore okay yeah and then now specifically dung beetles so when you say dung beetles for people like me who who, who have never seen never touched never smelt the dung beetle how would you go about um, I guess is the word pre- procuring like a dung beetle or what 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 is it yeah <laughs> okay so dung beetles is a bit of a it's not a biological grouping in the okay. sense that there's actually a bunch of different beetles from a few subfamilies okay okay like basically higher higher dif- different classifications right that have co-evolved to have the same habit of going towards dung go <laughs> <laughs> And basically eating dung and providing it as a resource for also their larvae. Also, they eat know. dung yes. and they provide... Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, like dung is a quite a nutrient-rich source that is under-exploited by other animals. <laughs> could, could, could you state some evidence to back up your claim? <laughs> Rabbits eat their own poop. <laughs> really? Yeah, but that's not really because it's nutritious. It's more like they don't... Their stomach is not able to digest all the nutrients in one go. So like cows have a very long digestive tract, right? They yep. supposedly have four stomachs, quote, in inverted quote, commas. Oh, isn't, uh, that, isn't that fact? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not that they have four literal stomachs, but like there's different chambers. Yeah. So, oh, okay, 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 yeah. okay, okay. All right, all right. That allow them to digest. Because to be honest, right, plant material is very difficult to digest. Fibrous material. Yeah, fibrous okay. material. Um, so for a small thing like a rabbit, the, <laughs> yeah yeah they has to go through once and then it shits out and then it goes through again you know? mm. yeah then even things like termites that you would right? yep. they have to have a symbiotic bacteria inside their gut that breaks down the wood for them so it's actually wood eating is a pretty rare trait in most animals wood eating yeah okay but anyway back to fecal matter <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, so, I mean, it has a lot of uh, 
It has value. It has value, and it's um, how do you say this? It has proteins. It's it's all biological organisms, right? It's not it's not inorganic material. Mm. Yeah, it's just that, uh, and because there aren't as many animals that go for that as opposed to like plant matter or or other animals, then it becomes an unexploited resource that mm. some organisms can. So like, along the line, to. for some reason, evolution species of certain types of beetles naturally just evolved to rely or start feeding upon fecal matter. Yeah. I think when you look at it like that, it's quite poetic. It's quite nicer. It's like, Everything makes sense. Yeah. And it works because um, it speeds up the decomposition mm. of feces. Otherwise, you know, the whole world will be covered in shit. And dumb beetles are very, very fast at burying the things. Like, there are a lot of studies where they leave where they weigh a pile of shit, right? And they just put it out. Yeah. And then let the beetles come. And then they weigh it like the next day or at certain time periods and they see how fast it disappears underground. And it's very, very fast. Yeah. I saw a video of some dung beetles rolling the shit. Yeah. It looked like they're pushing it, but they're doing it on their hind legs. Yeah, yeah. Is, is that common? Is that a common trait? It's actually not. Okay. Yeah. So, um... So even for that, it's a particular type of dung beetle. Yeah, there's a specific... A uh, group of them, or subfamily of them that does that. Okay, uh, it's quite cute. <laughs> so they've been so dung beetles have kind of been separated into three functional groups, and now actually current research suggests that there are some species that blur the lines between these groups. But in general, okay. uh, there are dwellers. So dwellers are dung beetles that sit in the shit and they eat the shit and they just just sit there, la. So they dwell in the they shit. They dwell in the shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There are tunnelers, which is most of the dung beetles that I work with. Mm. Um, basically, they go to a dung, they fly to a dung pad, they will dig a tunnel underneath that pile of dung and they'll bring the poop down with it. Wait, wait, wait. Could you repeat that? So they literally bury the shit where, where it is. Yeah, so they'll fly, they'll land in the, in the dung pad. Yeah. They'll tunnel, they'll make a tunnel underneath the dung pad. They'll okay. bring the shit underground. Is there a reason for that? Uh, so they are basically, usually they are making brood chambers. Brute Chambers. Sounds yeah. like a StarCraft game, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, dung beetles, for most of them, they will make what, is a, what we call a brute ball. So every... It, it's basically a, a spherical ball of shit. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so sexy, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> it's a ball of shit. <laughs> yeah, so okay. okay. Brute ball is a, it's, it's a, it's usually spherical or oblong, that kind of thing, mm. right? So it's a ball of shit. Yeah. It has a small little cell that they insert an egg into. Oh. So when the egg hatches, the larvae lives, breathes, eats shit within that brute ball. Yes. Until it develops and uh, metamorphosizes into an adult beetle. So it'll go through its pupa stage, come out as an adult, and then it will go out and like find shit to eat and reproduce. And you have observed this because it is your, your research thing? It is one of my research questions, yeah. Interesting. Like, offer them different types of shit, see which one they like. <laughs> oh, really? See how they yeah affects development. I can. So I would imagine... Did you have to offer like human, animal, I guess, I mean, bird, or whatever? Due, partially due to limitations, we only use two different types of dung in this study. So, okay, so I guess sidetracking a bit. But we are, th- this particular section of our study, we were looking at um, condition dependence on larval development. So like, if you give larvae from the same parents, so genetically similar offspring, um, two different types of resources, like human dung, which is which we hypothesize to be more nutritious because of our omniforous diet mm. as opposed to cattle dung, which is only grass, grass right? Yeah. Um, that it will impact their development differently. Yeah. 
So I don't know how, how much of my <laughs> results we can discuss, but it seems like um individuals conclusion? that rate that were raised on human dung seem to be larger and have more impressive horns in the males than those raised on cattle. So the like if you have a bigger horn is a elf a major beetle. Yeah. Major male. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess how I'm very curious as to let's say you have you have a team of you 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 guide a team, right? Is yeah. it does it function in a way where someone comes up with let's say a hypothesis like what you just described mm-hmm. and you guys uh support it and you guys go and do your research and you guys gather like uh things to 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 validate this don't say validate but to to prove this hypothesis and you'll record down your your findings is 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 that an accurate explanation of how a, a certain project will go because mm. from, from from my perspective that's how i would imagine but i don't know how it actually is like what is a day in a life like for you well it happens in phases okay so my particular project like at the start of my PhD and stuff, right? I had to go over what is currently known, what is not known, and uh, which questions would be worth pursuing. Oh. Yeah. So the not known part. Lah. Yeah. So is there anything you can share? Well, the basic structure of uh, my research covers like kind of like four main questions. <laughs> One of them is a more general what is the diversity of dung beetles in Singapore? Okay. Yeah, so that's a basic ecological exploratory question. Yeah. Documenting, like we try to document every species that we can find in Singapore, basically. Come up with an index uh, checklist, basically. Mm. Maybe evaluate um, threat status, if possible. Threat what? Threat status. Whether they're endangered or not. That kind of thing. Pedos can be endangered too. Yeah. Especially if they're reliant <sighs> on other species that are endangered. Like the dung of other species or yeah. whatever. Oh, that is so interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. For example, we have a species that was recently thought to be extinct. Someone actually published something that said that maybe this species is no longer in this in Bugetima, for example. Yeah. Turns out that they happen to be canopy specialists. What is so, canopy specialist? So they are found more in traps that we hang in the trees than in the ground. So for most dung beetles, they live on the ground, right? And they bury the poop and stuff That's like that. That's my conception that of it. one species occurs much more in the in, in the treetops. And if so, you didn't know to look there, you would probably miss yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And so then it is likely that that particular species is very dependent on arboreal mammals, mammals that live in the trees. So uh, monkeys or squirrels or whatever. Interesting. Yeah. And if you have a species of monkey that's endangered, that has a very specific diet, for example... There's this monkey called the... I think they recently called it the Raffles Bandit Langer. Wait, what? <laughs> Raffles? Bandit? Bandit. Bandit Langer. What's, I mean, it used to be called the Bandit Leaf Monkey. Does, does, does the name have to make sense per se? Or is it I just... usually name after a person or something. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But essentially, it's a leaf monkey. Mm. So these are monkeys that eat leaves. So they're different from um, macaques that... Uh, berries and stuff that are omnivores they eat anything like okay. even, even human trash food right mm. so these monkeys they only eat leaves so they have a very fat belly their gut is very different from the macaque okay so the kind of poop that they have also quite different from macaques yep. and that these, these monkeys I think the population maybe about 60 or so I'm not sure what the, the more recent estimates are but not a lot of them and this subspecies is supposed to be 
endemic to Singapore. Mm. That means even the ones in Johor, the population is quite divergent from ours already. Yeah. So if there's a species of dung beetle that only feeds on the poop of this monkey, yeah. if this monkey is endangered, that dung beetle is even more endangered. Well, what can, let's say, what can you do if you find out like a species that is endangered? Do you bring it in and try to cultivate it? Look, what, what, what can one person do? Yeah. Well, it depends on the biology of the species, right? Mm. So clearly for something like a dung beetle, if you conserve the host, like, then actually the monkeys are quite charismatic, so it's not really a problem. <laughs> monkeys are quite charismatic. Now that we hear that line. <laughs> They're mammals compared to insects. So way more charismatic, right? So, and they are like very peaceful looking monkeys. are not like macaques that are like grabbing stuff and throwing them. Yeah. Uh, because they, they, macaques they, also, they are quite important. Yeah, because I think, my, my, I think my question stems from, they are part of a larger uh, yeah. ecological, I think, chain. Yeah. So when one species is endangered, and you would like to, I guess, uh, preserve the species, mm. how would you go about doing it? Do you collect like a small sample size and just feed it away from the, the natural habitat? Or? Yeah. Depends on the species biology. So like if you have a certain butterfly that is endangered and you know there's a native host plant that they go to, you can grow more of those native host plants where they are found naturally and try to boost the natural population. That's one way to do it. Or you could literally breed them in a butterfly garden that's specifically for that species. And then hopefully you'll be taking individuals from a native population. So when you release their offspring into the wild, they are genetically similar. Yeah. For example, this is just one very specific example. For things like mammals, where it's difficult to breed them in captivity, then you just monitor them uh, regularly, like the population size and fight to protect the specific habitats they're found in and food plants that they might have. Yeah. Is it always a losing battle? Or because um like one of the examples you 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 mentioned just now about there used to be this particular species found in this particular area, but because of urban development, like it, yeah. like the patch of like that patch of grass is gone. So it would lead reason to believe that perhaps that particular species is gone as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that happens very often as well. Yeah. yeah. And that's why many conservationists are depressed. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So there's a very high real depression among people in conservation field. But, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh, not always a losing battle. Okay. It really depends on... Uh, it's actually dependent on a lot of things, including like socioeconomic uh, factors. Mm. Yeah. So for example, in the US, like an entire area can be... Uh, protected from logging or from de- being deforested for like oil or anything because of the presence of like a burying beetle that's endemic to that place. Oh, wow. Yeah. Whereas here, like you can have a monkey, like a mammal, like a big mammal that might be um, endemic also. And like even things like the, the like rhinos in Asia, they can go extinct, right? Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of different things. I think. I think for for from from my perspective, it, it is pretty interesting because a lot of the things that uh, insects per se, mm. they are mostly invisible. They're mostly invisible to, I would say, the average person. I mean, when I see a cockroach, I hate the. I yeah. don't know what that was. What what species of cockroach? I mean, when I see a lizard, I guess. Yeah. But I can imagine the the case for preservation 
being for let's say something tangible like a, a rhino mm. like an elephant is a lot greater than that of a one particular type or one one particular subspecies of beetle i can imagine right. the, the case for preserving let's say a certain type of rhino mm. being a lot stronger than a particular type of beetle so what what are your thoughts on that i mean the bias is definitely real yeah i'm, I'm not sure whether Mackenzie brought this up during his interview where i think he did actually where they were trying to conserve an endangered species of con- like vulture, I think, or condor. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, well, they, they basically, one stage of their conservation plan was to bring any remaining individuals into captivity and screen them of diseases and anything like that before releasing them into the wild again. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that process where they were sterilizing the birds, they removed all the parasites. And the lice and uh, all the other parasites that live on the feathers of the birds, those were all are species specific meaning that species of lice is only found on that species of bird so by cleaning out the birds you basically made the yeah, lice like yeah. yeah so you kind of killed one species in the process of trying to preserve save another yeah. yeah I mean I'm not sure whether it was ignorance like they didn't know back then that that lice was only found on the bird yeah but like very clearly that there's a bias for any conservation there's a bias for what we call charismatic megafauna it's like an actual term Charismatic megafauna. So if you do break down those two words, is megafauna is plants? No. Megafauna is big animals. <laughs> so big animals that are either cool or cute and appeal to people. Uh. So like mm. famous example of this is pandas. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure whether Ken also brought this up, but pandas are I would not say they are ecologically extinct, but they are quite close to it, I think. So there are so few of them in the wild. Yeah. I mean, they've been repopulated, but back then there were so few of them in the wild that the, f- the, the role that they played in the, in the ecology was basically like uh, for sure, you know? Mm. Yeah. So uh, if they went extinct at that point in time, yeah. not much would have changed to the forest dynamics. I mean, it would have changed to some extent, but not massively. It's catastroph- like very devastating news for an animal to hear. <laughs> yeah, but it is visually appealing. And charismatic megafauna and in preserving something like a panda yeah a panda is a large mammal that has a home range home range yeah like so environment? when you when you conserve we talk about things like mammals right they can't just be isolated to like a small patch of forest mm. they need to wander they need to roam they yep. need to have territories like you can't have a whole bunch of individuals in one place and they start fighting right so that means that to maintain a min- a minimum population of these pandas, you need to conserve a certain area of forest. And in using the panda as a kind of like a poster boy for conservation, you are basically saving everything else that is within that patch of forest. Is 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 this actually true? Like it is, it is interesting. Yeah, so we rely heavily on like. Invertebrate people don't like to admit it, but we rely heavily on the conservation of other species for the conservation of uh, like many other things that rely on them. Mm. Not just as part of the food web, but the habitat, the general habitat that they all live together in. Yeah. That is very interesting. Yeah. While I was doing my research, uh, I came across this video called Wild City that yes. you are, I think on the credits, it, it mentions that you are part of the, the research team. Yeah. You're the researcher. So what does that mean? Because when I was looking at it, um, it was it was fucking fascinating for me because I know of things like uh, termites. Mm. 
praying mantis, but I know the concept of them, but to actually see them uh, doing their thing uh, and have a very nice voice talking to me about it. <laughs> and it's very visually appealing. And right. I think for, for one particular example, it's the paper wasp. So mm. I think it was after a storm yeah. and uh, the, the particular nest or the particular hive of it, I think it's soaked. Yeah. So in that particular video, they showcase the fact that they are the the the, the paper walls are trying to suck the, the moisture of it and to uh, yeah. deposit it elsewhere just to to save the integrity of it. Yeah. And I thought that was, I mean, I can imagine the same scenario if there is a sinking ship and people are trying to save yeah. the ship. Yeah. So I think, okay, to 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 the point about is it what was your role in it, and is mm-hmm. this the particular type of fascination that more people should know about. Because as I said, a lot of these things are invisible. So about the paper wars, they did total total everything. So in the end, the integrity of the of the of the hive is saved. Then they showcase where the where the hive is. It's by the side of this walkway that ninety nine percent of people will miss it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what what was your role in this particular documentary? And do you think that documentaries like these um illuminate the 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 wonderful microcosm and the diversity of hmm. Singapore's invisible creatures. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the paper wasp, right? So yeah. the, the fact that it was in an urban location was very deliberate. Mm. So, um, okay, I'll talk a bit about my specific role first. Yeah. So I was brought on as basically like a, in a researcher position. So I would suggest to them because of my contextual knowledge uh, organisms that would be like species that would be good for filming because for one they would be easy to find or they would have some kind of relevance to uh, humans that one is part of the storytelling thing that we'll go into a bit the frog's very cute yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then um, also to connect the film crew with the relevant experts for oh. to verify biological facts or to highlight interesting behaviors that they should look out for when they're filming. Mm. Yeah, so some of them is based on the insect's biology, they will go at a certain time or they'll go, they'll look for specific behaviors to film, right? Um, and then that was actually intertwined with their storyboarding because they were looking for insects that they could very easily anthropomorphize. Anthropomorphism is the definition. What's the definition of that? Make them seem human. Ah, oh, yes. So okay. By, oh, that makes sense now. Okay, okay. Yeah, by giving their behaviors a very human twist to it, and by by choosing insects that are found in urban areas that are easy for people to come across, what they're trying to do is they're trying to make them a bit more relatable in a mm. sense that similar to like the the Pokemon example, right? Yeah. Except. Like to make their actions and their behaviors seem more relatable so that you take more interest in their lives and their behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing also that's useful about documentaries is the fact that it's screened on general television. Yep. Yeah, so you might not intend to watch but if you just like stay after watching like the news for that yeah. night and then it just lets the TV play you might accidentally stumble upon it and like, oh, actually it's quite interesting. And it picks your interest and yeah. you continue to watch more. Yeah, so they specifically went for yeah, certain behaviors like the wasp building. It's it, it's almost like uh, I don't know. Do you watch Parasite the movie? <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah, like yeah. when the family was trying to bail all their sh- the the water out from the basement, right? So it's oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's a very real kind of like uh yeah thing you can almost empathize with. It it feels I I don't know if this question is under your area expertise, but mm. what do you think of the psychology of I guess uh let's say insects for example. 
what do you think of that? Because some of the um behaviors that they that they uh showcase, it seems like they do possess certain levels of intelligence, like like that that moisture thing, like taking mm. it out and putting it like for the paper was taking the moisture out of the 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 hive and depositing it elsewhere to, to save the integrity of it. It feels they feel fucking it feels like they're fucking smart to a certain degree. Mm. Have you ever is this within your area of, of, of research? Have you ever thought about it? So not directly. Mm. So um I mean animal cognition is a very it's a very it's a minefield. <laughs> it's a minefield? In the sense that like um I mean in, in in terms of animal welfare and other things, but that aside, um invertebrates in general are not seen as one of the animals that are particularly intelligent by humans' standards. Uh. What's an invertebrate? Invertebrate are organisms that do not have a backbone. So anything that's not a fish, a mammal, a reptile, an amphibian, a bird. Yeah, so insects, worms, uh, some marine organisms. So, gotcha. things, so examples of in- invertebrates that might be uh, have higher levels of cognition that are recognized by humans or perceived by humans is um things like octopuses and other mm, things related to them right yeah yeah and it seems like even in certain groups of spiders i see like, the rolling one yeah it's so cute <laughs> so the cartwheeling spider yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it looks like a fucking looney tune cartoon <laughs> uh, but you actually show them rolling and they were saying that um they're rolling so fast that I think actual human speed is about 30 km per hour or some shit like that. Yeah, it's yeah. like, whoa, what the fuck? <laughs> so some of these are, I mean, uh, so a lot of these behaviors I feel are mostly like instinct. They have evolved with the ability to recognize uh, when they are facing problems and how to solve it. So, I mean, generations of wasps probably had soaked nests and then they react by imbibing water and taking it out, right? Hmm. Um, spiders, that defense mechanism is only in that group of species. Yeah. So that would have been, there's a genetic uh, predisposition, like explanation for why they might have a certain behavior yep. or adaptation. For some groups of spiders, it seems that uh, jumping spiders seem to be more intelligent that they have um, decision-making processes. Like, they have plan A, plan B, plan C. If plan A fails, they can switch. That kind of thing. And recent, wow. <laughs> recent studies by another professor in NUS, so not not really my field, but yeah. yeah, animal behavior field, suggest that they may even have different personalities within the same species. So, two individuals of the same species, one might be more aggressive than the other. Yeah. We're talking about spiders, right? We're talking about spiders, yeah. So, the willingness to attack prey at a certain cost it's different for... So you're, you're bringing concepts like weighing the cost and benefit yeah. of attacking a certain prey. Yeah. And it, that fundamentally... It could be instinct, for sure, but... It could. And like also that discerning it, factor, it showcases a moderate level of uh, the word intelligence. Hmm. So it could be genetic, like there are different genetic lines that yeah. have certain predisposed um, behaviors or personalities, but I mean, we don't know how much of that is actually like... You know, the fact that Two different spiders can have different personalities, like how and how bold they might be. It's really mm. quite interesting. Is it any anything at all controversial? Um because to, to an average person, insect is just an insect. But to introduce uh, human concepts into their behavior could seem quite controversial to some. 
like to me, they might have behaviors that are similar to ours, but I don't think the process, the cognitive process would necessarily be, ah, be similar. Okay. Yeah. Like the way uh, Dang Bitong might pro- make provisions for its offspring is a bit like how mammals would provide for their young that most other insects do not do. Oh. Yeah. Like most other insects just lay their eggs and like fuck off. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Okay. Don't, okay. There, there's very little offspring care in uh, anything other than mammals and birds, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, but to us, be, them having certain behaviors that we can put a human twist on it, it's, it's a bit like that uh, phenomenon where you see a pattern that looks like a face, but it's not actually meant to be a face. So yep. these are behaviors that uh, seem familiar to us, but they actually occur very differently and for different reasons. Do you think it's because of that, do you think it's more observational? Because we are, we as a species, we have a certain level of cognitive intelligence. So when we observe something, we try to make sense out of it. Yeah. So we have a bias kind of thing. Ah. Oh. Yeah. So if aliens would observe us, yeah. it would probably be the same thing like, to a certain degree. Because yeah, we do point... organize ourselves in, in a certain fashion as well as humans. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So I mean, depend, depending on how the alien intelligence works and how they yeah. perceive anything else that's not them right, other yeah. than self yeah. then um, like humans are either going to be fucking weird or, yeah. like, or they might end up being really similar I don't know interesting yeah. has, has there been anything in your research recently that I guess surprised you that surprised me because mm. uh, from my perspective after if, if, you, if, if you're constantly doing this every day you're constantly doing research you're constantly procuring beetles I would imagine after a certain point in a certain space or a certain environment you would have looked at perhaps almost all of the dung beetles or the, the beetles in that particular area. So I'm just curious to know if there's anything that surprised you recently. Not even particularly about beetles per se, but... Mm, I mean, it's a bit difficult to explain. I mean, one of the things that surprised me is the fact that we have species that are common in Malaysia that are extinct here and species that are extinct in some Malaysian islands but are still found here. So it's, it's very weird that these patterns of extinction and... Um, that's a that's a very difficult question to answer. It's a lot of like stats and modeling that I have not gone into yet. Right? So interesting. So um, when when finding something out like that, is 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 a plan set in motion to to repopulate, to make it not as not extinct? Yeah. Well, it depends on the factors that led to the differences in community, right? So if they were dependent on a mammal that is extinct here as well, and but is present in Malaysia. Um, then you have to bring the mammal in yeah so it's very very complicated and whatever so it depends and if this ecosystem is functioning fine even though that species is extinct it's a pity but there isn't an urgent need to bring it back per se oh yeah so there's a risk also of reintroductions for example otters (laughs) were native they disappeared for some time and they basically we started developing and reclaiming our beaches right then otters all ran to Malaysia then Malaysia Johor started developing then they ran back <laughs> and then uh, okay yeah so, some people argue that there is nothing controlling the population here I mean I think they control themselves because of territory but it is true that there aren't many predators that feed on them other than each other yeah so and things like the hornbill the oriental pipe hornbill was, were extinct from Singapore and we set up nest boxes to try and encourage them to fly over from Johor and we <laughs> It's, it's a thing. It's, it's documented in actual hardcover well, book. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not debating the fact that it's a thing, but the image of that is, I think, quite funny. 
Yeah, and they, and they came back. And in fact, some people argue also that they're too successful. And too successful. You even find them in like places like um, Holland Village and, and US, very urban places that you usually not associate with them. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, there isn't any evidence that they are ecologically detrimental to our current ecology. But yeah, the populations have bounced back surprisingly well maybe too well I don't know interesting yeah so I have to be very careful with these kind of things um, there's always a cause and effect there's always yeah. you have to always consider the, the the perhaps the macro look of things mm. it's not as simple as it's, it's not like a one stop solution to a certain degree yeah there's a lot of different layers that have to be looked at now, very interesting very complicated oh, biology is messy <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what has what has kept your fascination about it throughout all these years how, how long have because you mentioned about playing Pokemon, having like an interest yeah. since two, let's say about twenty two years ago, twenty twenty something odd years ago. Hmm. How how what has kept your what is the one thing that has kept your fascination throughout all this time? Even shifting from let's say ladybugs to to beetles to yeah, the idea that there are, I mean, to me the idea that is that there are many things that are going on outside of our scope of knowledge and observation is already very interesting mm. so there's a lot of things that's going on like we are doing a lot of things in our lives like going to work going to school taking exams getting stressed out over like these things that are deeply important to us yep personally yep but there are all these things out there that are going on that are i don't know that you can say are either equally important or equally meaningless mm. <laughs> but they're all very interesting to me mm. yeah so the fact that there are species out there that have not been described or discovered or there are behaviors and other things like that, or patterns in ecology and evolution that have not been uh, found uh, is what intrigues me. Mm, it is what drives me and also what frustrates me because um, beetles are diverse, right? Like I explained. 300,000. So <laughs> as much as Pokemon says, gotta catch them all, I know it's never going to be achieved in my lifetime, even for Singapore, because oh. there's just so many of them. So Singapore... You, a lot of our species are not known for for insects and a lot of new species are still being described. But it's not an easy process. Yeah, so the idea is to try and come up with a, at least contribute some kind of baseline for people to work off. Because for a lot of groups, right, there's nothing. There's no key. What do you mean no, there's nothing? There's no track list, there's no key. So um, if you try to find any information about, like even a common beetle that you find that fly into your room, right, you try to find a species name for it, you might not be able to find a reliable piece of literature that will tell you what it is. How 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 is it? <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it's difficult, okay. right? So to be able to clarify some of these things and make work slightly easier for future generations, maybe might be a goal. Mm-hmm. Like for some groups, it, they're they're quite they're quite easy, they're relatively easier to study. Like for surprisingly, ants are are quite well known. So okay, we you know um. Although there's still a lot of new species being found in Singapore. Yeah. Uh, grasshoppers and crickets, until my senior came along, very, very difficult. But then he had the tenacity to go and seek out uh, other experts in the area, um, go to museums, visit museums, and compare everything, and then come up with a reliable way to identify his uh, local grasshoppers and crickets. So now, like for, for people like us and uh, for future generations, when they try to identify one of these organisms, it's it's a lot easier because mm. you already have a reliable source that you can go to. So it's so weird because it feels like uh fundamentally it's a very 
you're observing and you're researching a fundamentally very, very objectively small thing, mm. but on a macro scale and for the future, it feels like a very huge endeavor. Yeah. And like, actually some critics would say that things like taxonomy and all that, it's not really a science, it's more like stamp collecting. But <laughs> the thing is, yikes. With, I mean, maybe part, part of why we enjoy it maybe is, is related to that. Yeah. But um, the problem is that to describe a basic unit of life, you cannot separate that from the fact that it needs a species name. For example, if you do a study on a species, right, like this species, you might find it to be ecologically important, right? Uh, but it does not have a name. You mm. cannot publish because... What, what do you mean that you don't have a name you can't publish? Okay, so for example, I've in my final year project, right, yeah. I did a study on uh, beetle communities in Singapore based only on their DNA barcodes. So okay, I took a whole bunch of beetles yeah. from different habitats. Yeah, that are like a it's like a soup of beetles, huh? <laughs> uh, Yeah, okay. Okay. I took each individual beetle. Yeah. I scanned their barcode. Okay, uh, threw it all into a computer program that groups them all into species. Okay, based on their DNA. Okay, right, and I can say that this habitat and this habitat, this habitat has how many different species from this family. This habitat has how many different species from this family are the species within here and here similar? Because we have the DNA barcode, we can tell. So we can tell okay. that this is species 1, species 2, species 3 is different from species 4, species 5, species 6, but they do not have names. So we, we can do things like ecological analysis and evaluate habitats yeah. without even having the name of the organism. Mm-mm. But if you want to publish a significant finding, like the specific behavior of a certain organism or like a parasite or like a... Uh, something that could be medically important. Yep. For example, you cannot do it without a species name because a species name is um something that's universally recognized. I mean, not universally, but like within the humans. Sphere. Yeah. Right. So things can have common names like uh like uh trumpet tail dragonfly, but what we call it in English in Singapore can be different from what someone calls it in Thailand in their local language, right? That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And even within the English language, like different people can have different common names for the same organism. So you cannot publish something with a common name because it is not a shared. So uh, it's a scientific name. So we the importance of a scientific name is that no matter where you go, it is oh. that name. So even people in China when they describe a species, it's in it's Latin. Still, mm. Yeah. Binomial uh genus species. Mm. No matter where you go. Yeah. Um yeah, so do you think it's a it's a what's the word flawed like if you have all these findings but let's mm. say you you are unable to identify the scientific name for this particular let's say species of uh, insects that is related to the findings but the findings are beneficial yeah and you can't let it publish a paper is that is that a flaw in, in, in the way that we we put importance in things mm. what, what do you think about it I think there, I mean, as someone who works in academia, I think academia is actually very, very flawed. <laughs> okay. Because of a whole bunch of different reasons. But mm. in this particular case, um, what I think is that if you already have a, like let's say you can identify it down to a higher classification, like it's genus. So yep. you're not sure about the exact species, but you know it's definitely part of this group of species. But okay, okay. You can... 
publish it with a DNA barcode and say that like uh, when the species has been described or identified positively, then we will update this piece of information. But we have reference material if you need to make sure that the species you're working on based on this research is the same as ours. We have the DNA barcode, we have the actual specimens, that kind of thing. So, so that's one way to go about doing something like this. I feel, yeah. Okay. The only tricky part is that like, um, if we are not allowed to update uh, the literature in future, when you do a literature search, for example, and you on the species name, once it's become established, you will not find all the old papers that refer to it. It's quite... <laughs> okay, so like the whole species name thing, right? Yeah. Like for example, there was, um, there's this one species of fruit fly that's a whole bunch of basically the entire basis of our genomic research was based on a fruit fly. Okay. Because it was a model organism. Um I think the first organism to have its complete genome sequenced, like all the ATCGs that make up the organism, the very first one was a fly. Okay. This fly and it's a model organism for many other studies that have like biomedical relevance, have like genetic relevance, right? Like for but for like things like genetic studies like splicing all those kind of gene things right okay yeah they all use that as a model so that particular fly has been found to not actually belong to its genus so it's called drosophila melanogaster okay but in actuality it does not belong as part of drosophila it should be some other name yeah but we are reluctant to change the name because the moment we change the name officially yep. and some people start publishing using the new name, people in the future, when they search for studies related to this organism, it will be very messy because they have to refer to two different Ooh. names or like studies from a certain year onwards will be using a different name, for example. How, how do you think something like that could happen? Did someone fuck up along the way? <laughs> I mean, the problem is that a lot of these names were coined a very long time ago and back then when we started using them as a model species no one revised what was known about it and then we go then like people went back or like maybe not intentionally but like just happened to find that like, yeah it doesn't match up so it's a bit of a controversy la. a bit uh, so it's similar to the the whole crayfish incident again mm. yeah but with something like that as you said there's a lot of uh, other perhaps more important research into other species built upon this particular foundation so yeah. in this particular case there is a lot of reluctance to actually remove because you're removing the foundation then it begs the question what about the other things yeah basically like people in the future I don't know they look back on, on these papers that have two different names and like yeah. were they using two different model organisms <sighs> are they the Fucking same confusing, so. Yeah, yeah, that, so I mean to standardize everything I guess it's easier to just go with the the old name. I can imagine like someone writing a Da Vinci Code story based on this. I mean, it, it seems pretty interesting, like a thriller. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, it's just one of the ways that um, the, the names can have a very big impact on like future, like other research that's dependent on it. Mm. Not just research, but like laws and other things. Okay, yeah. um, just, I, I guess to wrap up this conversation, speaking about the future, I think uh... I have been recently interested in a lot of Instagram accounts that okay. showcases insects, mm. a wide variety of insects. And I think it is quite fascinating because as I, said, as, as, as I think we, we, we touched on before that how people used to, to uh, classify whatever they see, it's through drawing, mm. uh, text, but now you could shoot a video, 
you could take a picture, you could upload it to the internet. So, and, and with newer technologies, like, like the gene splicing, or not gene splicing, but, but, the, but the genome sequencing and mm. having like barcodes. Is it, is it an actual barcode? Uh, or is that like the layman term? Yeah, it's layman term. It's like functionally, it's a barcode, but it's, okay. it's just a string of ATCGs that is unique. Okay. Yeah. Do you think there needs to be a, a greater push for using newer technologies to, to be able to even store all these information and to, to help future generations be able to track because when you say that there is like 300,000 species of beetles, is there like a search portal, like a filter? Mm. <laughs> no. No, there isn't. Yeah. So how, from, from my perspective, how, if, if the foundation isn't built mm. right, and it seems like it's a bit shaky like, to a certain degree because species get lost, species are overseas. Do you foresee the internet playing like a huge role in helping... I guess researchers such as yourself to archive uh, species for the future. Definitely. I think we cannot escape the fact that uh, we have to rely a lot on new technologies. Like already we are using new technology to clarify a lot of misconceptions on taxonomy in the past. Um, and one way that we are moving forward also is that there's, this, there's, a, there's a lot of ways to, to move forward, right? So there's one that's uh, online database of DNA sequences. Oh. So every time you sequence an organism and you publish it, when you publish the study, your DNA sequences, the species name and your study title, uh, your study identification number should all be sent up to the online database. Mm. So for example, if I have a species that I cannot identify, yep. but may have been studied by somebody else and identified, yeah. right? I have the DNA barcode, I can basically send it to the database and it will send me back the highest matches. Right, so like this species matches this one, uh, your your barcode matches the barcode of this other species by, like ninety seven percent or something, or like ninety nine percent. If it's ninety nine percent, it's probably the same species. Yep, yep. And then if you are lucky enough, and that study happened to identify it to species level, then you have a species name that you can, uh, put to your unidentified organism. The only oh. problem with that is how reliable the other study is. Then you have to go and dig up that study and see how reliable they are, lah. Cause just cause they upload it doesn't mean that they did a good job. What shack? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's there's a lot of reviewing of there's a lot of peer reviewing of yeah. other people's research. Uh, from and what if I people don't do it well, it, it it just messes up everything. Uh. So there's a lot of trust we have in uh, yeah, and a lot of peer review. Then I mean that's ideally how science should be. Otherwise, you're gonna have like false information flying around everywhere. Flat up, so safe. Yeah. <laughs> then the other thing that databases have been doing and the internet has been doing is that it has a lot of uh, a lot of uh, collaboration. Oh. Right? So we are collaborating with people who have worked on dung beetles in Sabah, people who have worked on dung beetles in Indonesia to kind of come up with a common database that we can put all our species up on as a like central portal for this group. Right, and we can exchange information. Like every time we find out something about their biology, we can update that species page. So, does it come with like a picture and characteristics, or is it totally something different? Uh, I mean, ideally, it will almost read like a Pokedex, uh, right? Interesting. So, like a picture, characteristics, maybe like a short description. Yeah. So. I mean, Singapore has their own database, yeah. but it's a very general database for Singapore's biodiversity. Yeah. So, I mean, right now it looks like that. You can even search by groups and all that kind of thing. 
Oh, okay. And it's constantly expanding because they're still uploading everything and there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of different like marine organisms, insects, birds, mammals, plants, right? And yeah. the, the idea at the end of this whole project is to have all Singapore species up here in high definition images, have their DNA barcode, anything yep. that we know about them yep. is up there. This species, like you have a sidebar that like this species feeds on this other species. You yep. can click on that and go yep. to see the other species. This Ooh. species feeds on everything else or, or is eaten by these other things. Yep. For example, you see the entire network of life, I guess. Is this in one place? Is this like a pipe dream or is this constantly being pushed I feel forward? Like Singapore is a good test bit because we are so small. Yeah. That if it is possible for any tropical country, it would be Singapore, I guess. Mm. Although, to be honest, um, like political boundaries are very arbitrary. <laughs> um, what, what, what do you mean? How, how would it affect the, the study and the, oh, the archiving or something like this? I mean, if we specify the region, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, it's just that um, biology doesn't care about our political boundaries. Uh. Of course. Yeah. yeah, so like a species range can be much more than just Singapore. So when we look at a, a specific species, and how rare it is, for example, we have to take it in the context of like the wider region, right? It could be rare here, but common in Malaysia or the other way around even. Yeah, like how the Javan miner, that blackbird, right? Okay, uh-huh. The ones that we always see around. Mm. Um, those are not native to Singapore, but they're super common here, right? Back in Java, where they're native to, they are rare and threatened. <laughs> so... Is it a migration thing? It's a, it was a trade thing. So they are rare and threatened over there, partly because of the songbird trade. But here they are pests. So Interesting. Yeah, so I mean, that, there's a lot of dynamics to, to take into account. But if you're just looking at Singapore and we specify Singapore's context, then it works. Yeah. Interesting. I guess, okay, to wrap up this conversation, last question. What do you think we can learn from, I guess, insects? From insects? Mm, I think well for me what I take away from insects is the fact that I mean the most important thing to me is that there's a lot that we don't know mm. right No, <laughs> the most important thing I know from them is that we don't know anything <laughs> but <laughs> um, so they, they do their own things very so-called so single-mindedly like we don't really think much about their cognitive ability mm. and uh, but they all have a very specific and important function. So they're all like, to put it very crudely, like this whole ecosystem is like a giant machine and they're all individual cogs. But if you take one out, then the whole thing collapses, mm. right? So they are not as charismatic as many other animals, yeah. but they are, I would say, equally if not more important than many, yeah, in terms of keeping everything running. So things like dung beetles that we think are disgusting and have mm. like a weird behavior. Mm. Weird is um, it's only as perceived by humans because we don't eat shit. Or, you know, like if we everyone had the mentality of a dung beetle, then human food is disgusting, right? So... Oh, yeah, they don't, right? They, yeah. they feed on... Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. okay. So we view them from a very human-centric point of view. Yep. Yeah, but objectively, you know, they do what they do and... Ultimately, it kind of benefits us. Uh. Yeah. Mm, very fascinating. It's super fascinating <laughs> conversation. Okay, so where can people, to, to wrap up, where can people find you? Where can people follow you? Where can people uh, look at your Pokemon adventures? Yeah. Mm. What are your socials? 
I mean, you can find me on Instagram. Okay. SG Beetle. Man. I think that's the easiest. Beetle, like B-E-T-L-E? Like B-E-E-T-L-E, yeah. Okay. SG yeah. Beetle. Man. Yeah. Okay. Is that on Beetlejuice or is that is there a particular reason why it's called Beetle? Man? Uh I mean it first came out as a as a pun on like Beetle Nuts, like B-E-T-E-L, Beetle Nut. Is but that a type of beetle? It's a type of nut. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> like, right. like an actual plant product, right? Like yeah. beetle nuts. Yeah. And then, except that, like, I'm a beetle nut. So. Oh, yeah. okay, okay, okay. It's hitting me now, okay. Yeah, yeah. So is, is that where uh, most people can find you? Easiest place to find me would be there because I'm less responsive on Facebook and less likely to accept friend requests. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I All mean, because right. my, my Instagram is open, so... Okay. Yeah, not private. All right. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Wonderful. Welcome. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired. If you enjoyed what you heard thus far, do give us a follow on Instagram. And don't forget to share and subscribe. Stay tuned for the next episode.